Great singing. You could be seated. Well, welcome to Daybreak, everybody. Welcome to those of you who are here and those of you over in the acoustic venue. How many of you were here for Easter last week? You were here at Daybreak. Great. Um, you and a couple thousand others. It was a great, great weekend together. And, and uh, I just wish, I said to somebody uh, earlier this morning, I wish that all of us as a church family could be in the baptismal tank together. Now, I know that sounds a little weird. But there's something amazing about the perspective of being a part of people's uh, life change and the decision that they've made to, to, to honor God and follow him with all of their lives and, and to be a part of Easter worship and to be a part of the baptisms, which you all were, um, is just an amazing, amazing thing. So we had so many stories of life change uh, that uh, we'll celebrate in the weeks and months to come at Daybreak. But Pastor Joel talked about defining the relationship. As we began this Not A Fan series, he talked about what it means to really look at your relationship with God, your relationship with God through his son Jesus, and say, what does it mean for me to be in a relationship with him? Let's define this thing. And uh, uh, today we're going to take a next step with that, and we're really going to look at the open invitation that Jesus offers us to be in relationship with him. Uh, how open is the invitation, and what does the invitation that he's offering us really look like? Uh, but this invitation that Jesus is offering us this morning, it's important for you to know, it's an invitation for you to be a follower of his, for you to follow, not just to be a fan. It's an invitation for you to get in the game with, in a relationship with God and to live it out and give everything that you have to it. Not to, just to be a spectator, uh, to sit on the sidelines and, and to cheer on uh, maybe others who do or to cheer uh, for Jesus at a distance. That's not really what God ever intended. He intended for you to be in the middle of it, following him in a relationship with him every day. Uh, about 20 years or so ago, I came home from a weekend at, uh, I came home for the weekend from college and I went to school in Northeast Georgia, just north of Atlanta. So uh, depending on how fast I decided to drive and how badly I wanted to get home, it took anywhere between nine and 12 hours for that trip to get home. Those 700 miles sometimes went a little quicker than other times. But I came home from uh, Georgia and I got home and it was an evening. Um, I'd taken a final first thing in the morning and then I darted home and I remember it was about nine or 10 o'clock, I get this call. And uh, it's from a friend of mine from high school, and he's home as well. And he says, hey, we're going caving right now. You in? And I was like, oh, caving. I just drove 12 hours, but, you know, it was hard to resist. This guy was uh, a great friend and kind of a crazy man. I thought this is going to be a good time. And, but I had this decision uh, to make because I didn't know the other guys that were going along very well, and I was pretty wiped out. I didn't have any of the right equipment along with me. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to put the effort into it that night. So I had to decide, am I in or am I out? What's, what am I going to decide? Because if I was going to decide I had to be in, I had to be all in. Because I knew this was going to be a long night. I didn't get much sleep the night before, and I'm not going to get much sleep this night either. Um, so I thought, I can't turn back. I can't be halfway. And this actually, but because I was in college, I didn't care about sleep. I said, sure. And so I went. And this actually turned out to be one of the greatest adventure nights of my life. We just had a blast. And uh, this is, uh, I actually had three people after the first service come up and ask for directions to this cave that I'm going to tell you about. But I had been to this cave once in high school, but uh, we went to this, down to this cave and, and we got there around 11 o'clock at night or so. And, and the interesting part about this cave is the opening to the cave, to get into the cave, you have to go under four lanes of Route 81. They built 81 on top of the entrance to the cave. So it's down past Chambersburg, mystery to be revealed later if you want to know. See me afterwards, I'll tell you. But you go down uh, about an hour south of here and then you park in a farm field and you make this walk through somebody else's property and you come along Route 81. And uh, along the side of Route 81, there's a corrugated tube about three feet in diameter. Uh, and you go into this hole and you crawl about... 100 yards under four lanes of traffic, and it opens up into the entranceway to this, this cave. And so when you get there, the interesting part about this cave is the entrance is, is very narrow. So you actually have to go down and then come back up. And when you come back up, it leads you into the main, the central cavern of the, of the cave that kind of everything branches off from. So um, I'd done this cave once before, but um, what was different about this time is that there had been a lot of rain. So when we got through the tube and to the other side, when you went to go down, what once was just kind of a passageway you shimmied your way through to get into the main cavern was now filled with water. And so off onto the side, you get down so far and it's just water. And you know that six or eight feet on the other side is the main cavern, but 
on the side, you can, there's this little kind of passageway over there that you could see through and see that, yeah, you could get there, but there's no way you were getting through that one. And so what we did is we took off our helmets and we put all of our food and our gear into our helmets and then we floated them on through. So then it was this uh, challenge. And again, am I all in or am I not? So we had driven down here. I'm here. It's the middle of the night. I'm either swimming through this thing or I'm not. And I'll stretch the story and act like, you know, it was a mile to swim through. But actually, I think it was about six feet. But nonetheless, it was six feet where you were going underwater and it was the only way to get in. You had to go underwater and, and you had to be committed to do this. And so, you know, the first guy went and I don't know, I was somewhere in the middle, but take a big breath and you go for it. And uh, came up in the middle of that cavern and we had the adventure of a lifetime that night. We just explored that cave, got back in the early morning hours, just had a blast. It was so much fun. I was so glad that I did it. Uh, There was just the adventure of a lifetime that night exploring. But there was a decision to be made on the front end. Was I going to be in or was I not? And I think in in, uh, many different ways, this is what the invitation that God offers us looks like in our lives. That Jesus' invitation is this. He's inviting us to go on the adventure of a lifetime with him, but we have to choose because we'll never experience the adventure unless we're all in. We might go along for the ride, or you might enjoy hearing about my story in the cave this morning, but unless you were all in, unless you went and you went for it, you didn't experience it yourself. And so it's something you're kind of standing at the distance and just listening to or or hearing about. It's the same way it is with the invitation that Jesus offers you. You're either all in or you're not. You either experience it yourself or you just hear about it and cheer, cheer it on in the lives of others. So today we're going to look at what Jesus' invitation actually looks like. And we're going to pick apart one short verse from Scripture, from Luke chapter 9. And it says this. It says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. I'm going to pray for just a moment. Father, would you open our eyes today? God, would you open up our ears so that we can hear your truth and that we can be changed. Thank you, Jesus, that you invite us to go on the journey, the adventure of a lifetime with you. Help us to be receptive today to the way your Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what does Jesus' open invitation look like? Uh, You can take out your outlines and follow along this morning, but the first point is this. To follow me, you need to know that everyone is welcome. To follow Jesus, you need to know that everyone is welcome. Luke chapter 9 says, Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. So this is an, an open invitation. Jesus says to the crowd, he says to them, would you circle the word crowd there? He says, if any of you, you can circle the word any. So Jesus is speaking to a large group of, of people, a mixed audience, He says, if any of you here today wants to be my follower, there were no exclusions. He didn't limit it to any particular kind of people. He just said, if any of you wants to be my follower. And when the crowd uh, would have looked at Jesus' disciples, they would have known that Jesus meant what he said, that this was an open invitation to anyone. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory so you can understand this a little bit better. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Now, he was an unconventional Jewish rabbi at best in that he was a homeless Jewish rabbi. Uh, but he had Jewish disciples, and he lived uh, um, in, the, in the heart of Jewish culture. So in Jewish culture, the first five books of the Bible were given by Moses, and they were called the Torah. And the Torah itself was the foundation or the very center of Jewish culture. It was the center of their lives, and it was the focus of their educational system at the time as well, uh, the Torah. So most Jewish boys or girls around the age of six, they'd go to school for the first time, and they'd learn the Torah. School was held in a synagogue, and it was taught by um, a, um, a rabbi who was a Torah teacher. And this first education level lasted until the kids were about 10 years old. It's comparable to our elementary school system. You get started around six, and, and you go till you're about 10. But this is where it separates a little bit from, from our system. In the first, this first level of education, most kids would memorize the Torah by heart. I want you to catch this. Matthew, or Matthew, that'd be the New Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy by heart in elementary school. By heart. And I know this to be true because um, on one of my flights between uh, Jerusalem and the U.S., I actually sat... Um, I was in the middle of a plane with a whole lot of Hasidic Jews, which are uh, very traditional, uh, the most traditional Jewish uh, uh, kinds of Jews. And the father spent the whole flight, it was about a nine or ten hour flight, he spent the entire flight with the Torah open, working with his son 
teaching him the Torah and reciting the Torah back and forth to each other. It was one of the most amazing experiences in my life to sit in front of a father and son having a blast together as they went through and memorized the Torah together. And this is what they would teach kids in elementary school. They know the, the Torah, every word by heart. Now, around 10 years old, most kids would stop going to school and they would start apprenticing in the family business. They, they'd learn the family trade and how to manage a household, that sort of thing. But the best of the best would go beyond elementary school and they would go into what might be comparable to our, our middle school system at, the nec- at, that time, at this time. And in this next level the ones who, who maybe were the most naturally, uh, had the most natural ability, would memorize the rest of the Old Testament in their middle school years. So now we're talking about from Genesis to Malachi, memorized by the end of middle school. This is the best of the best that would move on, on to that level. So uh, by the end of this level of education, their, their middle school, by the time kids turned 14 or 15, Almost all of the kids were done with their education. 95% or more of them, that was it. That was as far as they went in Jewish culture at that time. But the best of the best of the best would move on into the next level of education. And they would have to apply for that next level of education. And here's what they would do. They would go to a Jewish rabbi and they would apply to that rabbi to become one of that rabbi's disciples. Now, when we use the word disciple, we often just think of... um, someone uh, who is a student, who hears a teacher and is a follower of, uh, of that teacher. But a disciple in that culture in that time was something far, far deeper than just being a student. A disciple was someone who just didn't want to know what their rabbi knew. But a disciple was someone who wanted to be like their rabbi and who wanted to do what their rabbi did, to live like their rabbi Now, rabbis differed in how they interpreted the Torah. They would take a verse or a command, and one rabbi might say that this is what it means to obey this verse or this command from Scripture, and maybe another rabbi would say, well, it's close to that, but I believe it kind of means this, and and he would interpret it maybe just a little bit of a different way. So different rabbis had different interpretations of how you should live out the Scripture. So a, a rabbi's set of interpretations were called that rabbi's yoke, okay? So when you went and applied to a rabbi to become one of that rabbi's disciples, what you wanted to do is you wanted to take that rabbi's yoke upon you so that you could learn to know what the rabbi knows in order to do what that rabbi does so that you could become ultimately like that rabbi. So you would go to a rabbi and you would say, I want to become one of your disciples. And then the, this rabbi would start to grill you. He would, he would just ask you questions about the Torah. He would ask you questions about the prophets. He would ask you questions about all of the Old Testament oral tradition that had been passed down from generation to generation. Because that rabbi wanted to know Can this kid know what I know? Can this kid eventually do what I do? Can he spread my yoke? Does he have what it takes to live the life I live and spread my yoke to those around him? Does this, is this kid the best of the best? So if the rabbi thinks, well, this kid is good. This kid does love God and he loves the Torah, but this kid isn't the best of the best of the best. Then he would graciously say, well, it's obvious to me that you love God and it's obvious to me that, you've, that you love the Torah and that you've memorized it. But he would say, I don't think you have what it takes to take on my yoke, to become one of my disciples. So the rabbi would then encourage him to go back and learn your family trade. You've done a great job studying. Now it's time for you to go back and go into a profession and learn your family trade. But catch this, if the rabbi thinks that you've got it, if he thinks, I think this kid could know what I do, know what I know, I think this kid could do what I do, I think that this kid could carry my yoke, I think he could be like me, then this rabbi would look at that that boy and he would say, come and follow me, come and follow me. And at 14 or 15 years old, you would leave your family, you would leave your friends, you'd leave your synagogue, your village, and you would devote your entire life to being like your rabbi, to following him, to learning to do what your rabbi did. And that's what it meant to be a disciple. That's what it meant scripturally. When they used the word disciple, that's what it meant. So a rabbi comes into town, and he has his pack of disciples with him, and they're doing everything that they can to keep up with their rabbi because they're devoted to living their lives in the same way that their rabbi does. 
to doing what he does. So if you're a disciple of a rabbi, by the end of the day, you followed your rabbi down dirty, dusty roads, through, through all kinds of things, and basically you are caked with whatever your rabbi walked through in the day because you're kind of right behind him. You're just getting the dust off of his heels. And in that particular time, it was interesting because some wise men came up with this phrase that they used, and they used it as a prayer of blessing over those, those Talmud that they, who followed the rabbis. They would pray this prayer of blessing over them, and they'd say this, May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you just be covered. And it was like this great privilege to be told, may you just be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That means you're doing all you can to be a great disciple, to follow in in his path, to take on his yoke, to be the man that he is. And everybody in that day knew what that meant. All of this has huge implications to us if we want to follow Jesus All of this is huge in us knowing what it really means for us to be a disciple of Jesus and what it means to say, I'm going to be a follower. I'm not just going to be a fan. I'm going to be a follower. You see, most rabbis would begin their teaching maybe around the age of 30 years old. And this was the age that Jesus was when we see him talking to the crowd in this very passage uh, from Luke 9. He was about 30 years old. This is the age that Jesus was when we see him walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and just saying to, to normal everyday fishermen, come and follow me. Now, I want you to get this. If these guys were normal, everyday fishermen, and if these were random people that were there in a crowd that day, well, that means that they're not following other rabbi. Because if they were following other rabbi, they would have not been in that crowd, or they wouldn't have just been fishing. They were learning the family trade. They were doing the the normal life, which means they weren't the best of the best of the best. They were just kind of average folk. They didn't make the cut. Now, you might think it's weird that the Bible says when Jesus came to Peter, James, or John and said to these fishermen, drop your nets and follow me, that the Bible says that these guys instantly dropped their nets and just followed Jesus. That just seems a little bit freaky in some way. But when you understand what was happening culturally here, this makes a huge amount of sense Rabbis were the most revered, the most respected people in the entire culture. They were the best of the best of the best. They were the most intelligent. They were the ones who everybody, everybody would aspire to be a rabbi, to be a great teacher, to be a great leader. They were the ones who everybody looked up to. And this rabbi named Jesus comes down the beach and he says to you as a part of a crowd or he says to you as a normal, just everyday guy, just a fisherman. He says, come and follow me. What was he saying to this crowd? What was he saying to these fishermen? Well, what he was really saying to them and the way they would have received that that from Jesus is this. They heard Jesus saying, I think you can do what I do. I think you could be like me. I think your life could have significance and value. And how old were these guys when Jesus said, said this to them, 15, 16, 17, 18, maybe 20 at best, of course they're going to drop their nets. Of course they're going to give up fishing when they're going to say, I can be associated with the best of the best of the best. Believe He believes in me, and he thinks my life could have value or could have purpose or significance or meaning like his. Jesus calls them to follow because the movement that Jesus was leading is for everyone. It's for young, for old, for rich, or for poor, for women, for men, for educated, for uneducated, it didn't matter. It was for everybody. It's a movement of anybody's, and he calls them, he calls the JV, he calls the B team, you know, he calls uh, the not good enoughs, the guys who got cut. Those are the people that he calls, and he calls them to be his disciples, and these disciples are the ones who go out and change the course of human history. Is this unbelievable? Like, this is the cultural significance of what happened in that moment. This is Jesus saying, everything's different now. I'm a different kind of rabbi. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Not a Fan, that uh, we are kind of basing this series on, has this quote in your outline. He says this, So the rabbis would take applications for followers, but that's not the way Rabbi Jesus went about getting followers. Instead of followers applying, Jesus invited followers. This approach of going to someone and inviting him just wasn't done. A rabbi wouldn't humble himself or extend himself in that way. A rabbi wouldn't risk rejection. A rabbi would do the rejecting. But Jesus takes the initiative. 
It would have been shocking enough if he had simply allowed Matthew to follow him. But Jesus actually extends the invitation. He says to Matthew, follow me. Anyone hearing this exchange would have been shocked. So when the crowd looked at Jesus' disciples and he saw who had been invited to follow him, they knew that Jesus was serious, that this was an open invitation for anyone, and that anybody means everybody. Jesus had no pre-qualifications. Anybody could choose to be a follower of his. This is one of our four core values at Daybreak. And if you've ever come through the lobby of Daybreak and you've seen our values on the wall, the first one is this. Everyone is welcome here. Everyone is welcome here. No matter what your background is, no matter what your income is, doesn't matter what mistakes you've made, your habits that you have in life right now, your hang-ups, your hurts, everyone is welcome here. Now I want to be clear. That doesn't mean that we're a church family that condones all kinds of sinful behavior or, or hurtful choices that we make. You are welcome to come here just as you are, but our prayer for you is that you won't stay that way. Our prayer is that you'll come as you are, but that you'll be changed. Our prayer is that you will allow God to lead you on a life-changing journey with Jesus that's going to transform your life, and it's going to make you more and more like him. So you might be thinking, well, that's awesome. I'm really glad that Daybreak does that, and I'm really glad that this is the kind of invitation that Jesus offers, but how does this change me? How should I respond to this? Well, this means that you and I need to be like Jesus, and we need to check our prerequisites for what it means to be a part of coming to Jesus at the door of the church. And we need to park those prerequisites whenever we come in contact with people that Jesus is extending an invitation to. Any ideas that we have about who should or shouldn't be a part of God's family, we need to learn how to put those things aside and get beyond all of our biases and prejudices and what we think it might ought to mean to have a cleaned up life in order to come and make a choice or a decision to follow Jesus. Any judgments that we have, any holier-than-thou attitudes, they have no place in God's family. They have no place amongst followers of Christ. Daybreak isn't about just the people who always have their shoes shined and have their shirts ironed because most of the pastors don't own an iron. It's not really about the wealthy or the poor. It's not about the people that I like or the people that I don't like. It's about having a certain, it's, it's, it's not at all about having a certain kind of background or a certain image before you walk in the door. But it's about anyone who wants to come after Jesus. That's what Daybreak is about. That's what our church is about. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is about. I want you to catch this. A fan wants to make church all about themselves. A fan asks, how does church make me comfortable how does church meet all of my needs? How does church do what I want it to do? But a follower makes church all about pointing to Jesus, pointing everyone, pointing all of the anybodies that he possibly can to the rabbi who invites us to follow him. And to be a follower, we need to learn to do what Jesus did. I need to learn how to welcome everyone with open arms. As a follower of Jesus, I need to learn how to listen to stories of brokenness and hurt and pain without making instant judgments about who those people are and what their viability might be in God's kingdom. Which brings me to the next point in your outline this morning. To follow Jesus, you need to make a turn that you never considered before. To follow Jesus, you need to make a turn that you never considered before. The verse says, Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower... You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. So yes, the Bible says that this is an open invitation, but Jesus is very upfront about the fact that this invitation is going to require active participation on our part. It's not just watching from the sidelines. This is going to require something of you if you choose to follow. It's going to require you making a turn that you may have never considered before, a turn from your own selfishness. A turn from your own selfish ways. I love the way another translation says this. It, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you need to put aside selfish ambition. Put aside all of your selfish ambition. So I think often when we hear the word selfish, we decide in our minds, I'm not a selfish person. I maybe used to be a selfish person when I was younger, but I'm not a selfish person anymore. And we kind of give ourselves a pass. We think, I don't hoard my stuff, and I know how 
to play nicely in the sandbox of life with all the other kids. I'm not selfish. So no one wants to think of themselves as a selfish person. If I came up and asked you today, do you think that you're a selfish person? Chances are you'd try to be a little defensive at first, uh, but then maybe you'd come clean with me and say, yes, I, like you, Rick, am a selfish person. Um, but what happens when we define selfishness, when we, re- when we change the definition, we define selfishness as being self-focused. That changes it a little bit, makes it a little bit harder. Because when I'm honest, I am a very self-focused person. Most of my thoughts are directed at me. How will this thing affect me? How will people think about me? What can I do to make things more comfortable for me or for my family? But it all centers around me. It's the way we all are naturally. When I was a youth pastor, I used to encourage uh, adults to think about themselves standing in front of their middle school or junior high locker. Now, how many of you can remember the junior high or the middle school that you went to, the building? All right, I want you to think for a minute and think if you can remember the locker that you had in junior high. And if any, for those of you who can remember, which won't be all of you, just be some of you, I want you to try to put yourself in front of your locker and I want you to try to remember the kinds of things you were thinking and feeling when you stood in front of your middle school locker. Let me give you a few examples. When, you, when you're a middle schooler standing in front of your locker, one of the things that goes through your mind is you truthfully believe that every person is looking at you. Every person who walks by is analyzing what it is that you're wearing, how it is that you're behaving, maybe what your shirt or pants or whatever looks like or doesn't look like. Uh, Maybe they're noticing that it took you three times to get your locker unlocked today and they're probably mocking you for that as they went by. Uh, You're thinking that they know about what happened in your class yesterday and that you were, you know, you, you think that they're still laughing at you from something they didn't even know that happened yesterday. You have all of these thoughts in your mind that kind of center around you and everybody's thinking about you. It's the way that we naturally are. We kind of grow up and we think we get by a lot of that, but the truth is we just become adults and we learn how to hide it a little bit better or maybe uh, become a little bit better at acting like we're not as self-focused as we really are often in life. And turning from your selfish, turning away from your selfish or your self-focused ways means being willing to consider on a moment-by-moment basis that what is going on in life around you is not about you. That's hard. It's hard to in every moment of every day. It might sound simple, but it is the challenge of a lifetime for us to not analyze every situation and every circumstance moment by moment and instantly think about how it affects us or about um, how we're going to respond, what that's going to mean to us in that moment. It sounds simple, but breaking free from a self-focused life can be difficult because we all tend to live um, in what Kay Warren calls the kingdom of me. Uh, Kay Warren is Rick Warren's wife, and she wrote this great book a few years back, and I've not read the whole book, but my wife has, and usually when my wife likes a book, she reads a lot of the parts to me, Uh, so I feel like I've read a lot of this book, and I've benefited from it greatly. I'm going to read a part of this to you about the kingdom of me, and then it ends with a paragraph that is in your outline. This is what Kay Warren says. She said, I, like many other adults, devote a fair amount of time, energy, and money to controlling, polishing, protecting, and defending my own private little kingdom. Like a despotic ruler in a mythical story, I can be the omnipotent potentate, supreme authority, oppressive dictator, and highly exalted one in the kingdom of me. Of course, I would never say it out loud and might be outraged that anyone would even suggest that I operate that way, but it's the reality of the struggle that I face every day, and so do you. At my worst, I rule over my domain with an iron, iron hand, fiercely protecting my territory, my possessions, my reputation, my persona, my dignity, my rights as queen or king. I am in control. As Gary Thomas observes, the biggest block to our surrender is not our appetites and wayward desires, but our addiction to running our own lives. I have to admit that there are many times when I want the world to revolve around me, my comfort, my pleasure, my convenience, I desire that others see and interpret everything through my eyes, that they make me happy, meet my needs, and refrain from offending me, hurting me, wounding me, upsetting me, or irritating me. I want to be understood, appreciated, acknowledged, elevated, praised, valued, attended to, catered to, respected, admired, accommodated, listened to, loved, adored, and cherished. My greatest efforts every day go toward myself. Others-centered, not often. Surrender control to someone else? Not a chance. 
My reluctant thoughts may resonate with you. I think you will find the same ugly reality that I found. What stands in the way of your surrender to God's plan is simply that you care more about yourselves than you do about the suffering of others. What could ever break through those impossibly thick walls of self-centeredness? Who or what can change your perspective in such a way that instead of living to serve yourself, you actually want to live to serve someone else? To whom do we surrender the keys to the kingdom of me? A jailer? A torturer? A more powerful enemy who has beaten us into submission? A ruler whose intent is to ruin and destroy? No, we surrender to a father who loves us unconditionally. And this is the last paragraph that's in your outline. God wins us not by shouting, beating us up, or starving us into submission, but by asking for an invitation to enter. We are loved into surrender. The more we accept that he operates out of love for us, the more we will entrust ourselves to him. Fenelon expressed this truth beautifully. God is not a spy looking to surprise you. He is not an enemy lurking in the shadows to hurt you. God is your father who loves you and wants to help you, if you will, but trust in his goodness. I'd like you to hear the story of someone from our church family who has learned what it means to turn over the keys of the kingdom to God. Nora has been on staff as a part of our church family for a long time, and she's uh, a close friend of the staff and probably of many of you who know her. And in just a few weeks, Nora and her husband Marlon are going to be moving to Wyoming to begin a brand new adventure. And after years of living in Perry County, which is one kind of oasis, they're moving to the other side of the country to Wyoming, right, right near uh, Yellowstone Park. It's a beautiful place. Nora's life took a turn that she never expected a few years ago. And she's learning more and more what it means to surrender her own self-focused plan to God's bigger plan through her life. I'd like you to watch with me. When I was in my, you know, kind of teens and in my 20s, I was probably like a lot of people, just trying to live life, figure things out. But because of some things that ha happened in my childhood, um, I got to a point where I just had realized or had decided I am alone and on my own in this world. I felt like I could not rely on anyone for anything, and that was okay. I was going to be all right with that. Um, but of course, I wasn't really all right with that. And a few years later, um, I had an opportunity to accept Christ. And I was surrounded, God surrounded me with people who um, invited me to do that. And I saw what they had. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I wanted it. So I uh, said yes to God, kicking and screaming the whole way. Um, so my journey started out pretty slowly. I was very slowly coming to realize, you know, who God was and that kind of thing. And it took me a long time even to be able to say Lord. I didn't really want to acknowledge him as Lord. But over the course of 20 to 25 years of growing and lots of really good experiences um, with him, I became able to call Jesus Lord. And then the accident happened. Um, about three years ago, uh, September 30th of 08, um, I was at work and I got a phone call and it was my husband, Marlon. And I could tell right away something was up because his voice was not anything I'd ever heard before. And he said, I've been in an accident at work. Um, I'm burned pretty bad. It's my hands and we're waiting for the ambulance. Uh, okay, where are you going? Where are they taking you? I don't know, he said. So call me when you no. I got another phone call from one of his uh, co-workers and they were taking him to the hospital. So I get in the car and I head out. And on my way to the hospital, I was praying and I just was able to say, Lord, you have always known this day and this moment was coming. And whatever you have for us, it's okay. I trust you. And up to that point in my life, I didn't, I wasn't sure how much I really trusted God, you know, but this was the test. This was the moment. And it felt so good to just be able to let it go to him. So we get into the whole hospital thing. Um, and we, he was, we were in, I say we, we were in for about four weeks uh, the first time. And through that process, a lot of stuff happened. Marlon had, um, was an electrical worker, had been electrocuted, suffered electrocution burns, 
and ended up losing um, his right hand, so we had to make the decision to amputate. Um, he ended up losing his three fingers on his left hand and a lot of damage to his left hand as well. But every decision that we had to make, we just had kind of agreed, we're on this adventure together and God is with us and it's going to be okay. And it was hard and it was long and uh, the recovery time and all that kind of stuff, we just, we went through a lot, but we knew that God was with us. And so we knew that it was going to be good in some way. Uh, we saw a lot of great blessings coming out of that um, for us and for people around us and people that we didn't even know. God just used it, the whole accident and the process that we were in for a lot of good and probably more than we'll ever know. Um, so we can say, would we have chosen that adventure? <laughs> no, uh, but we, um, we were okay that it was God's adventure for us and it was a good one. In the last year or so, as Marlon and I have kind of hit the new normal or been figuring out what the new normal is for us, um, I've kind of been looking at my life with Jesus and I've realized it was sort of this, I gave him my head in the earlier part of my journey and then kind of in the middle and the time leading up to the accident, around the accident, it was, you know, I, I was giving more of my heart to him and letting him have more of my heart. And since the accident, I have been really realizing that one of the things that I've clung to so tightly for so long, my favorite possession is just this idea that I have control over stuff. And what God is teaching me now seems to be so much more about if I let go of the things around me that I'm trying so hard to control and just let him control me on the inside, control my heart, control my responses, um, just control what I do and how I think, then the fact that I have no control about most of what is going on outside of me doesn't matter because I have him inside me, that kind of that soul connection. Jesus is with me, he's leading me, I'm following him, and I'm learning to be controlled by his spirit. And as a person who is, has always been all about control, um, being able to give that up more readily now and learning how to, how to do that is just opening new doors for me and making me realize, oh my word, this is the life that I really have wanted all along. And in a lot of ways, it took going through what Marlon and I have been through in the last few years to really wake me up to the fact that God had this thing for me all along. And he's, now I'm receiving it and um, it's, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful way to live life and I just want to keep going. I want to keep letting him teach me that. When I think about what's coming next and going to Wyoming and seeing what kind of adventure you know God has for us out there, I know now that I can say yes today to whatever God has for us in the coming years because it's going to be good. Even if it's hard, <laughs> it's going to be good because it's his. I love the way that Nora said that. Uh, I love the way that she said her prized possession was control. That was her prized possession and that she had to learn how to surrender that to God. And I want to let you know this morning that if any of you uh, want to head west, uh, Nora and Marlon have literally invited the whole church family to come and stay with them at any point. Uh, that little town that you saw, they're living, going to be living right outside of it. And Marlon is a cowboy at heart. He's been dying to move out there his whole life. Uh, but it has really been amazing to see how God has led their, their journey um, through something they didn't expect. And they've learned that Jesus' invitation is an all-in proposition. And they learned it through a very difficult life lesson. But they learned that it's an all-in kind of thing. No matter what life throws at you, fans want to enjoy the benefits of following Jesus without any sacrifice. But being a follower means that we're willing to follow God through anything that life throws at us, sacrificing our own way for his way, no matter what happens. And being a follower means saying yes to God even before you know what the question is that he's going to ask. It's a decision ahead of time. I'm saying, God, I'm going to say yes to you no matter what. I'm going to say yes. And finally, Jesus says this, the third point in your outline, to follow me, you must be willing to be a marked man. You must be willing to be a marked man or woman, I guess. 
Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Jesus invites us to be marked by the cross. I had a roommate in college uh, who was a madman Christ follower. He was a Canadian, and uh, he was a Canuck, so he was also a little bit kooky. Any, any Canucks here in the audience? Yes, I'm glad I could compliment you in that way. Canadians are amazing people. They're all very unique in their own individual way. I'm sure they say the same thing about us. Um, but this guy wanted to make a statement about being a marked man for Jesus. So what he did was he got a little tattoo behind his ear, and it had a small cross with that, on that tattoo. And then it said Deuteronomy chapter 15. And here's what it meant. In the Old Testament, when you grew up in the Hebrew community, a slave would be given the opportunity to be released after he would serve his master for a six-year period of time. God does things in sevens. sevens. He gives us a Sabbath day of rest on the seventh day. He would give permission for a slave to be released on the seventh year if he chose to do so. But sometimes a slave would decide to not leave his master because he loved his master so much and that he could make a choice to become a servant to that master for life. And they called this a bond slave, a bond slave, a bond slave who would voluntarily enter into the service of this master permanently. It was a permanent commitment, and to mark that permanent commitment, they would pierce uh, the slave's ear as a mark uh, of their lifelong commitment to their master. This is the kind of invitation that Jesus is inviting us to, to be marked by the cross as a bond slave of Jesus, a person who has voluntarily decided to make a lifelong commitment to follow and serve the master whom we love. This isn't necessarily meaning you need to go get a tattoo. You could choose to do that if that, if that works for you. It's not distinctively being marked in a physical way. It's distinctively being marked by the way you live your life, surrendered to the cross every day. Jesus asks us to tape, take up his cross. And this commitment, this invitation to be marked by the cross, is not a commitment that fans of Jesus make. It's only a commitment that followers of Jesus make. No one ever took up a cross unless they were prepared to die on it. No one took up a cross unless they planned to die on it. It's about following with everything that you have. It's about saying, Jesus, I'm going to completely and totally surrender myself to you. Why? Why is it important that we completely and totally surrender ourselves to God? I think for two reasons. The first reason is that in surrender, it's the only way that we can truly find freedom. And that seems so ironic that the only way for us to find freedom in life is to truly surrender. But I want you to think of it this way. When we loosen our grip on the things that we desperately hold so tightly to, we begin to open up our hands so that we can receive God's best for us. But when our grip is so tight in control, like Nora said, when control is our prized possession, when our grip is that tight, our hands aren't open to being able to receive God's very best for us in life. Freedom lies in complete and total surrender to God. But there's a second reason for surrender that isn't about us at all. And the Bible's also very clear about this. When we completely and totally surrender to God, it's, it's about God's mission to rescue and redeem the world, to accomplish God's purpose, to create a holy nation, to create a, a group of followers, a church of people who are marked in our love and service for him so that the world can see who this master is that we serve, the one who's worthy of our voluntary, lifelong service and commitment. We're marked not just for our own personal, individual significance and blessing, but we're marked to show the world who Jesus is. We're marked to be his hands and feet in a way that lets them know the true heart of our master and what it means to follow a master who has our best in mind. You know, by nature, every one of us in this room are comfort seekers. By nature, it's the way that we are. We're not cross bearers by nature. But when Jesus invites us to follow him daily, he tells us that we need to take up his cross daily. What does it mean for us to take up the cross of Jesus daily? How do we even do that on a day-to-day -day basis? Taking up the cross daily means it's not a one-time decision to follow Jesus. It's not a one-time commitment. 
It's a life marked by moment by moment, daily surrender to the cross of Jesus. A daily decision, a moment by moment decision to die to what's natural for you, control, and to open up to allowing God to give you true freedom through what he wants to provide for you as you live for him. What does it look like practically in your life for you to take up the cross every day? Maybe it means God speaking to you about sacrificing your lunch for someone else or to go volunteer in a soup kitchen. Maybe it means that the next time you're talking to your neighbor instead of kind of playing it close to the vest, maybe you speak openly about your faith in Jesus and about how much you love your church family and about what God's doing, at work doing in your life as you put your trust and your faith in him. Maybe it means instead of taking a vacation and saving all you have this year to go to Disney World, you save all you have so that you can go on a missions trip. Maybe it means that there's an empty bed in your house that's waiting to be filled by a child who needs a home. Maybe it means selflessly loving someone who's not easy to love. Maybe the cross that you need to take up is a moment-by-moment challenge, and it could look different for every one of us. There could be a thousand different forms of it. Dying to ourselves and being marked by the cross could take a different form every day for you and for me. But I challenge you this morning, I want you to consider this question. What is your life marked by? What is your life marked by? Will anyone know that you are a bond slave of Jesus by the way that your life is marked for him? Jesus' invitation today is open to you. All are welcome. It's an invitation for everyone, but it will require everything. This past Friday night, my, uh, I had the great privilege of taking my little girl, my little six-year-old, to a daddy-daughter dance at her elementary school. We have a photo of this. There we are, Friday night. That's for the awe factor. Aw. That's my little girl. We had a blast. I honestly think the anticipation of this event was far greater than the event itself, uh, which is a good thing. All week long, we looked forward to this. Um, my wife had plans that went well beyond this. There was a photo shoot beforehand that apparently someday is going to be used in my daughter's wedding. Uh, these are things I know not of, but they all happened as anticipation and build up for this event. So it was a great time. We went out there and uh, just all these little girls, there was a lot of screaming, a lot of screaming, a lot of excitement. And uh, they were all so excited. We had a little dinner that school did a great job putting this on. And all the little girls wanted to introduce their dad to people. It was a lot, just a, it was a lot of fun. We had a blast. And then it came to the dancing part. And of course, just like a junior high dance, all the men stood around the perimeter of the room and all the little girls screamed and jumped around in the middle. And then a slow song would come on. And just like a junior high dance, the girls would go to the side to find their, their, their man. And the little girls would come find their daddies. And we would all go out and dance the, the slow dances with them. Uh, we did the chicken dance and a few others too, but it, it was fun. So uh, the whole night was a blast. Uh, there were a, a, a few moments that got me thinking about the future, like I don't know who was on song selection, but uh, Too Sexy played, and my little six-year-old, who had no idea what that meant, was jumping around out there. That was a little, I had to work, had to work through that. But overall, I had a, had a great night, <laughs> had a good time. But as I was thinking about uh, her and thinking about the future and and thinking forward to uh, the days that are ahead with her, I was thinking, okay, it's 20, imagine it's 20 years from now, and my little girl is 25 or 26, and, and uh, let's say that she isn't married by then, and she really wants to be married, so I decide I'm going to help make this, this happen, and I imagine that I take out an ad in the newspaper, and I put up big billboard signs, and I make up t-shirts just begging someone, anyone, to come choose my daughter. I even offer some attractive gifts as incentives. Um, you know, doesn't that cheapen a little bit who this little girl is? And wouldn't that make it seem that whoever came to her and came into a relationship with her was really doing her a favor or doing us a favor in some way? Now, let me be clear about something. I would never, ever do any of those things. As a matter of fact, I'm much more of a meet-the-parents kind of dad where uh, there would be a very high standard and I would do background checks, and young men would take lie detector tests, and there will be lengthy applications that will need to be filled out in triplicate and submitted to my desk. There will be uh, references that will be checked. Hidden cameras will be installed at places. All of these things will happen, but for the primary purpose of this, and that's that when it comes to my daughter, seriously, if there's a young man out there, if there's a, a boy who wants to have a relationship with my daughter, there is one thing I want to be sure of, There is one thing I want to be absolutely certain of, 
And that's that you better be prepared to give her the best of everything that you have. And I just don't want to hear you say that you love her and that you think she's the greatest. That's fine. I think that she's the greatest and I love her a lot too. What I want to know is that you're committed to her. What I want to know is that you would give your life for her. That you would lay down your life. You would give it up for her. That you value her in that kind of way. And I'm beginning to see Jesus' invitation for us to have a relationship with him in a very similar way. Know that it will cost you everything. Know that the reward will be unequaled. But be ready to give your life for it. Don't cheapen God's offer of love simply by being a fan. Be a follower. Everyone's welcome. Yes, it's for everyone. And yes, it will cost you everything. It's not just a part of your life. It's not just the Sunday morning, come to church, how I live in front of other people kind of thing. It's an every moment of everyday decision. Decisions that people see, the decisions that they don't. You are marked by the cross when you make a decision to be a follower of Jesus. Being a follower means making a pretty radical decision to give your entire life over to Jesus. There's a quote in the end of your outline. It says this, fans will be careful not to get too carried away. Followers understand that following Jesus is a pursuit that may cost them everything, but it is the best investment they could ever make. Followers will do some pretty crazy things for love, but fans want to play it safe. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm not sure how God is speaking to you this morning. He speaks to each of us differently and uniquely. But I know for me this week, God confirmed in my heart that I don't want to just play it safe. Earlier, I talked about when a boy was asked by a rabbi to come follow him, that the boy would leave everything and that he would follow that rabbi wherever the rabbi would lead him, that he would follow him so closely that he would be covered in the dust of his rabbi. And that is the invitation that's open to you and I today to follow your rabbi wherever it costs, whatever it costs, wherever it leads. And Lord, I pray that many here today will accept your invitation and that they'll be covered in the dust of their rabbi Jesus. And Lord, I believe that there are some here today who just want to use this as a holy moment, as a time of declaration. And they want to say, Lord, I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing to let everyone know that they are welcome. I'm willing to let my church family and my life point to Jesus. Not just have it be about meeting my needs, but have it point to the one who can meet every need. And Lord, today I'm willing to make a turn that I never considered making before. That I'm willing to turn from my self-focused place, from the kingdom of me, to a God-focused place where I say yes to you and I open my hand and I surrender and I give up control. And Lord, today I'm willing to be a marked man, to surrender to you, to find true freedom and to take up my cross and be marked as a bond slave for you as I go on this life-changing journey with you, Jesus. I commit myself to you I surrender to you. I want to be covered in your dust. And it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.